Good evening. Uh, Please take up your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Gospel of John and chapter 4. We'll be reading from the first verse all the way down to the 42nd. John chapter 4. Hear the reading of God's holy word. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the fields that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well to drink, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one, you are now, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and the hour is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town, said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? 
Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who weeps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. Keep that passage open uh, now in front of you, if you would. There are uh, some phrases, aren't there, in the English language, short short phrases that come at the beginning of stories that in a very small amount of information set the scene, set up your expectations for what is about to follow. They give you a clue as to what the sort of genre is that the story is going to be. It was a dark and stormy night, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, once upon a time in a magical kingdom. Your expectations are set, you know what sort of story is coming. We have a similar-ish sort of situation here. In the first few uh, verses of chapter 4 of John's Gospel, he sets the scene. He's giving us the key information for what we need to know, what sort of counter this is going to be, what sort of thing is going to take place. Jesus is travelling in a country... He's weary, he sits by a well, and it's Jacob's well. How does that set the scene, you might say? What, what sort of expectations should we have? What genre of story is this? Well, in order to answer that, we must ask ourselves first, what is the significance of wells in the Bible? Where have we seen this sort of set up before? Well, back in Genesis, uh, both Isaac and Jacob, two of the patriarchs, find their wives at wells, And then, a little bit later, Moses uh, finds the family of his uh, future wife, Zipporah, in a very similar sort of circumstance as a well. Wells are therefore places where people meet their wives. The meeting at the well is often a prelude to a marriage. And it can be, in the case of Jacob, and it's no coincidence that his name is mentioned, a place where romance first blossoms and relationships begin. So here's Jesus. He's by a well. What's about to happen? Does the story meet our expectations? Well, I'll take the story in four parts, uh, each revolving around a way in which Jesus actually reveals something greater than our expectations. The first section uh, in verse 7 to 15, where Jesus offers greater life than we expect. Uh, The second section in verse 16 to 26, where he calls us to a greater worship than we might be expecting. And in the third section, 27 to 38, uh, he shows us that there is greater work to be done than we may expect. And then finally, in the last little section from verse 39 to 42, we'll look at the greater marriage that this story points us to. So firstly, let's have a look at this greater life that Jesus speaks of in verse 7 to 15. Now, the narrative uh, starts off with a woman coming to the well. 
And Jesus asks her for a drink. So far, so good. This is exactly the question that Isaac has his servant ask Rebecca. And her positive response is the sign that she is to be Isaac's wife. But in Jesus' case here, in this story, that's as far as our expectations are met. Because the Samaritan woman, she doesn't comply. But rather, she instantly throws up an objection. Verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Well, John helpfully supplies the reason that that might be a problem. Uh, Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with one another. But it doesn't seem to be a problem for Jesus. It's the woman who sees that as a barrier to getting him some water. You see, Jesus is quite happy to break the cultural taboos here. He's speaking to a woman, for one, and one that's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. Jesus' desire to offer her a good gift is stronger than the categories of culture and ethnicity that she sees as such a problem. She throws them up as an excuse, in effect, to not serve Jesus. Her response to him, I think, is less a request for information as much as it is a roundabout way of her saying no. And here, I think, is an example of the first interaction between God and the unconverted heart, often. God is to be served. By right of creation, his kingship, all people are to bow the knee before God in worship and service. He has the right to ask anything he wants. All the right in the world to ask for a drink of water. But she doesn't comply. She doesn't recognize him. The woman's response is the response of the unregenerate heart to the call of obedience and service to God. By simply asking her for a drink, Jesus immediately exposes her rebellion against him. But let's see Jesus' response to her. He responds to her question by completely avoiding the issue uh, or stating over the issue between uh, the difference between Jew and Samaritan. It's not what he's concerned about. He reverses the roles. It's really she who needs his service, not the other way round. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is he's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see, Jesus asks her for a drink in order to draw her to himself. But she was all uh, the while able to ask him for what she needed. Jesus is worthy of all service, but he himself declared that he came to serve and not to be served. She is reluctant. Does she really want to serve this man this tiny, in this tiny way? Not really. But he is able and willing to give far greater service to her. He can provide her with living water. What is that though? What, what's he getting at, living water? What's he offering her? She doesn't quite comprehend, does she? Living water can just mean flowing water. Water that's not still and stagnant. So she's confused. How can Jesus give her a drink without any way to draw the flowing water that's at the bottom of the well? So she asked Jesus, are you greater than our father Jacob? In verse 12, she says that he gave us the well and drank from it himself and his livestock. In her, in her mind, Jacob did something great. He provided water for his family and their descendants. In doing so, he gives them a way to sustain life. People, livestock. For a certain distance around, life can flourish thanks to what Jacob done, did. That's pretty good. But you still have to go to the ground 
and get this water out. It's limited, isn't it? So she thinks that Jesus' claim is that the amount that he's greater than Jacob is that Jesus can get running water without having to draw it from a well. But Jesus blows her conception of him away. The amount that he is greater than Jacob is by orders of magnitude. He's not just dealing in ease of access to flowing water, but he's dealing with something on another level, beyond her expectations. In order to get at what he's talking about, we must first ask, what are some of the scriptural images of water that he is drawing on? Uh, And there are many. We don't have time to do a biblical theology of water, but suffice to say, from Genesis, where four rivers of water flow out of the Garden of Eden through Ezekiel's vision of the uh, newly inaugurated temple as water flowing from it all the way to the book of Revelation where the new heavens and a new earth, the new Jerusalem has water flowing from the throne. Water seems to show up where God's presence and activity is manifest with his people. Water is the thing that restores, refreshes, renews and sustains and evidences the purity of God's kingdom. We can say that these are offices of the Holy Spirit, aren't they? To refresh, to renew, to restore, to sustain and make clean and purify. So when Jesus is talking about water, he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's presence is the gift he gives the believer as a source of satisfying life. As he puts it, the living water he offers satisfies so that the drinker need never be thirsty again. And becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 13. It's one of the reasons that Jesus gives for his mission on earth, isn't it? He says, I've come that you might have life. And life to the fullest. (coughs) Eternal life. Now, the woman thinks that Jacob is great because he provided a well that gives temporary life to a village. Jesus offers abundant and full lasting life that refreshes, renews and sustains the whole people of God. The Holy Spirit waters the kingdom that is the very presence of God with his people. That is extending and rolling out across the globe, across history, across time. And will extend to the furthest reaches of creation at the consummation of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the Holy Spirit that we have here, those who are to trust in Christ this evening. And that's the amount of life that we have to offer this city, this country. You see, often people can have too small a view of the power of Christianity, of the gospel, and by implication the Holy Spirit. Someone might ask, can it fix my broken relationships? Can it heal my sicknesses? Can it improve my finances? Can it address some of the injustices in the world? Can it provide answers to some of my existential questions? As good as those questions are, asking those are a little bit like the woman asking Can this water water my camels without me having to go through the rigmarole of pulling it out of the ground? It can do a little bit more than that. The Holy Spirit brings eternal life to the blasted wasteland of death that is this world. And it will renew the earth as it draws people to worship Christ and give glory to the Father. This water, this living water, has cosmic implications. So the question is, do we believe it? Have we tasted it? Have we experienced the refreshment, the renewal, 
the restoration, the life that is offered in this living water. Excuse me. Let's turn our attention now to the next section, verses 20, uh, 16 to 26. And look at the greater worship that Jesus calls us to. Now the woman is intrigued, but she still doesn't quite understand. Verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I'll have to come here to draw water. <clears throat> but Jesus knows that there's something that has to be dealt with before he can draw her closer to herself, before he can point her to true worship. It's a sin that he must now confront her with. But observe how he does how he does it. He says, go call your husband and come here. It's a natural enough request perhaps, but this question cuts right to the heart of the woman's deepest shame, the centre of her sin. We may ask ourselves, is that a very kind thing for Jesus to do? It's a bit of a controversial question. He knows she doesn't have a husband. And it may well be the very reason that she's coming to the well at the sixth hour, because she's potentially ostracized from her society on account of her checkered past why is he bringing that up is he shaming her no see what happens she admits she does not have a husband and Jesus response is very interesting he says you are right he reveals that he knows the full extent of her marital history and then he goes on to say what you have said is true verse 17 and 18 there's no word of judgment there's no rebuke there's no correction, there's no command to change her ways at this point. You see, this is the wonderful truth of the gospel. We are never in trouble for telling God the truth. He already knows. Jesus' response is very close to a well done. He seems pleased that she has been honest with him in as much as she has. We are taught from children, are we not implicitly, to be afraid when we've done wrong. This fear leads us to lie and cover our tracks. Why? It's obvious, because if we come clean, we'll be punished. It's not the same with God. It's not so. God is a good and gracious Father. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, quick to forgive. When we come to God with our sin, he says, well done. What you've said is true. I've paid the price for that sin. The punishment is taken. There is no room for fear in confessing to God in the life of a Christian. Now it's at this point that the woman's appreciation of Jesus increases. She began by addressing him with no title, then she started calling him sir. Now she sees that he is a prophet. And immediately she wants him to resolve a religious dispute. Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim, Jews in Jerusalem, who's right? This is not something that we observe in the world around us from time to time. People bring a whole bunch of religious preconceptions with them uh, when conversing about theological and spiritual matters, don't they? People have bugbears, they want sorted out issues they feel that they need to address before they can commit to Christ or a church. But quite often these problems miss the point completely. But Jesus sees right to the heart of the matter. She's concerned about the right place of worship, but Jesus declares that ultimately, true worship is not about a location, but it's characterized by being offered and conducted in spirit and truth. 
That is what is important, and that's what we're called to, isn't it? True worship is worship in spirit and truth. Jesus gives the reason for this. God is spirit. It cannot be contained or restricted to one place. That's kind of one of Stephen's points in his great speech in Acts 7 before he's stoned by the Jews, isn't it? In the Old Testament, God had been worshipped in multiple places legitimately by his people before the temple was built. The temple was supposed to be a symbol of God's presence with his people, the visual reminder to Israel that they were a chosen people in covenant with God, and as such, he dwelt with them in a particular way. It wasn't a box in which to keep God. In fact, Jesus, in John uh, uh, chapter 2, is recorded as referring to his own body as the true temple. He is God with us. He is the presence of God with his people. Through the offer of the Holy Spirit, living water, that presence continues even after the ascension. We are the people of God and dwelt with Christ's presence through the Holy Spirit, and we're being built as spiritual stones into the true temple of God, with Christ as simultaneous foundation and capstone. So to worship God in spirit and truth is to worship God through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. The temple and all its rituals and regulations were just types and shadows. But Jesus says that the time is coming and has now come when people will worship in spirit and truth. That time is inaugurated by the work of Christ. Now we don't worship with outward regulations and human ordinances, but rather we worship the true and final revelation of God in the power of his Holy Spirit. And we worship as those united in that same spirit, don't we? It also means that worship in the truth is worship that is sincere without hypocrisy, without mere ritual, but with true and lasting, abundant life returned back to its giver in praise. So the question for us, the challenge is, is our worship Worship that is conducted in spirit and truth. The woman, however, seems still unconvinced. (laughs) She's intrigued, but still she says, okay, the Messiah's coming. He'll make all things plain. And then comes the moment of self-revelation. She doesn't work it out, does she? She's incapable, incapable of putting the pieces together. Jesus has to open her blind eyes and spell it out for her. I who speak to you, am he. You see, it's kind of ironic. He asks her for a drink. But he never gets his drink. She never actually asks him for the, for the true sense of what living water is. But he gives it to her. He reveals himself to her. It's a weighty, tense moment in the narrative. But then the tension is broken by the disciples and there's a little interlude so let's move on to the next section verses 31 to 38 where Jesus uh, calls us to a greater work see the woman is clearly beginning to understand isn't she who this is she goes off into the town to tell people but when the disciples appear they completely ignore the obvious question they don't ask why are you talking to this woman why are these people coming to the town to speak to you Their mind is on other things. Just as the woman at the well is fixated on earthly water, the disciples, as is often the case, are concerned with earthly food. Jesus cuts right to the chase with the disciples, telling them that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work, verse 33. You see, Jesus always has his priorities right, doesn't he? 
He's there for a purpose and he reminds the disciples that they should have that mindset too. They should be concerned to complete the work that they have to do. Jesus in verse 35 tells his disciples to lift up their eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's probably referring to the people that are coming to the town, are coming from the town of Sychar to him. And the disciples can see them coming up from Sychar. He says, this is the harvest field, these Samaritans. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He was commissioned by his father to save sinners, to redeem his people from their sins. And here they are, they're coming and going to the very one sent to save them. The harvest is ripe. Now Jesus in his discussion with the disciples appears to have the fulfillment of Amos 9.13 in mind. Which reads, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The point is that things are happening. This is such a time of sowing and reaping and fertile activity that the two, sowing and reaping, are coinciding. The abundance of the harvest is reflected in the rejoicing between sower and reaper. And the fact that Jesus says in verse 36, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Even though, in verse 38 he says, I send you to reap for that which you did not labour. Others have laboured and you have entered into their labour. Now commentators disagree over who exactly is the sower and who is the labourer in each one of those uh, sayings. But the general point appears to be that the abundant goodness of God is cause for excitement and rejoicing in the fact that whether you sow i.e. you're the one who initially shares the gospel with someone or you reap i.e. you're used in the conversion of someone being born again you get a reward and you can celebrate in the harvest this is despite the fact that it's God who is really behind it all isn't he he sows and reaps in reality but he allows us graciously to be part of this work so the question is is that our mindset Do we consider Solihull, Birmingham, wherever you're from, as the disciples saw Samaria, somewhere beyond redemption, somewhere you're just passing through, trying to make our time here as pleasant as possible with the equivalent of earthly food? Or do we see uh, Solihull like Jesus saw Samaria, ripe, white for harvest? Whether we sow or reap, do we see it as a harvest field? And are we receiving the wages and gathering fruit for eternal life? Or are we passing that by? That's the challenge. Now finally, let's turn our attention to the last few verses here, 39 to 42. And let's look at the greater marriage than we were expecting. Now what is the response of the the people of Sychar to Jesus and the woman's testimony? Verse 42 is fascinating, isn't it? The people say, it's no longer because of what you said, uh, the woman, what she reported that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. There are stages of belief here. The woman's testimony on her own experience is powerful. But it's actually the experience of meeting Jesus himself and hearing his word that has the transformative power. It's that that instills faith in these Samaritans. And the result is that these Gentiles are confronted with the irrefutable fact that this is indeed 
the saviour of the world. So why do I call this section a greater marriage? Let me return uh, to the beginning when I spoke of Jacob's well. Jacob and Isaac and Moses, Moses all find their wives at wells in a roundabout way. But where's the wife here? Where's the marriage? Are our expectations met at all? Well, Augustine would say yes, and exceeded. He reads this whole story as a picture, in some ways, of, of Christ and his bride, the church. And I think he's onto something. Any time that marriage comes up, as it does in this story, our mind should be drawn to the mystery of the union between Christ and the church. Paul's clear that that's the whole point of marriage at its deepest level. And I think John has already set our expectations in that way by having the fact that Jesus' first sign is at the wedding of Cana, and then just before this story, in the end of chapter 3, John the Baptist has referred to Jesus as a bridegroom. So is it any wonder that Jesus meets this woman just as God finds his people, his bride, alone in the heat of the day, laboring for that which cannot satisfy, and he offers her the water that can satisfy. In a very real sense, he offers her himself his own presence. Now some commentators have seen that the five husbands that uh, the woman had um, indicate or are referring to the five false gods associated with the ancestors of the Samaritans that are mentioned in 2 Kings 17. Whether those particular idols are in view or not, the reality remains that God's people are depicted throughout the scripture as in covenant relationship to God like a marriage. And they've been unfaithful to him and run after other gods. I think it's fair and right to see in this conversation a picture of Christ confronting his church with their infidelity and offering himself to her as the true and faithful husband. He will give to his bride the water of life and he will sustain and nurture her and provide for her. And she will be united to him in the spirit, washed clean, presented spotless before him. No hint of her former life of rebellion and unfaithfulness will remain. But rather through her husband Christ, she will worship the Father in spirit and truth forever in the new heavens and the new earth. See, Isaac, Jacob and Moses, they all found their wives due to events that took place at the well. By the end of this story, Jesus has revealed himself to this sinful woman. And these Gentile people are coming to him from placing their faith in him. They've become his people. And just like with the patriarchs, the events that took place at the well were a prelude to a marriage. This story is the prelude to a greater marriage, not just between man and a woman, but the lamb and his bride, the church. Now, with Christ at the right hand of God the Father, we, and I trust the Samaritan woman and her fellow villagers that trusted Jesus, await the marriage supper of the lamb. One day the people of God will be presented before the lamb as John's other book of Revelation says, his bride has made herself ready. It's been granted to her to clothe herself with, herself with fine linen, bright and pure. She is described as being prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This evening, let that hope of a greater marriage and the promise of a greater life than we can ever imagine encourage and enthuse us to a greater worship, worship in spirit and truth, and give us strength for that greater work of the harvest, spreading the good news of God's offer of salvation in Christ. Let me finish with these words 
of Revelation 22. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you offer us life in its all its abundant fullness. You offer yourself, your very presence, dwelling with us. You call us to a great worship, a worship in spirit and truth. And you call us to a great mission, a great work, spreading the gospel. Being involved in the expansion of your kingdom. We pray that the great news of the gospel would encourage us and enthuse us this week as we go out into the world. And that you would speak through us to gather in your children. So that one day they might rejoice at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. In Jesus' name. Amen.